Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. We have what will probably be a longer episode for you, since we are actually doing a good movie today. (laughs) Well, at least a, a movie that's probably going to give us more to chew on than some of the movies have recently. As well as more behind-the-scenes things Mm. to talk about. Yeah, I think so. What are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching the movie Bedlam from 1946, directed by Mark Robeson. And what is important about this movie, if you are a long-term listener of Scream Scene, is this is the final horror movie from producer Val Luton. It is also his final movie at RKO. Some books closing. Yes, exactly. Bedlam is the third collaboration between producer Val Luton and actor Boris Karloff. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had The Body Snatcher, which came out on May 25th, 1945. And then we had Isle of the Dead, which came out on September 7th, 1945. Karloff had been extremely happy working with Luton, Uh, crediting him with restoring his soul as an actor, while Luton experienced much-needed financial success with both of those films after a string of failures at RKO. Neither of them reached the height of cat people. No. But they... Made profit. Yeah. Part of it is probably Boris Karloff with, like, that name value there. Mm -hmm. But they also felt like movies that weren't just ripping off cat people. <laughs> sure. I mean, they, they both... The, the fact of the matter is, is that, like, when you look at the movies of Val Luton's that kind of didn't do so well, stuff like Leopard Man, Seventh Victim, Mademoiselle Fifi, Youth Runs Wild, there are things to admire in all of Luton's films, but you can look at the ones that didn't do as well and go, hmm, yeah... I can see why this didn't do as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But Body Snatcher and Isle of the Dead are both, I think, very strong films. I would agree. So for their third collaboration, Luton once again took inspiration from the world of art. Uh, Isle of the Dead had been inspired by the painting of the same name by Arnold Bucklin. And for this film, Luton took inspiration from A Rake's Progress by William Hogarth, which is actually a series of pieces of art, yes? Yeah. Just a little side note here. Uh, Rake, the noun, Mm -hmm. it's being used in um, a manner that I didn't know of until I heard the Decemberists. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Um, But if you're only familiar with the word rake in its gardening context, historically it means someone who is kind of a hellraiser, mm. uh, someone who does, like, immoral conduct. It's also commonly used to refer to someone who inherited a lot of wealth and is, like, gambling it away, spending it on, like, women and, like, throwaway things. A ne'er-do-well. Yes. These types 
this kind of definition comes from like the 1650s. Okay. Um, and it's not very commonly used nowadays. Right, unless you're the Decemberists who really like to uh, use a lot of old-timey words in their lyrics. Because they're hipsters. Because they're hipsters, Yeah, yes. and I say that lovingly. Mm-hmm. A little bit about the painter. Yeah. William Hogarth lived from 1697 to 1764, so he was 66 years old when he died. Born to a lower-middle-class family in London... Hogarth had an interest in art and engraving. While his father had financial ups and downs, mainly downs, um, at one point going to debtor's prison for five years, uh, yeah. William got himself an apprenticeship to the engraver Ellis Gamble. By 1720, Hogarth was doing his own engraving work, though he had more of a passion for painting. With his lower class background and also seeing the effects of debtor's prison on his father, William's work was often satirical. Okay. Um, and later on, it would also take on a bit of a, uh, I guess, like, moralizing tone. Sure. Don't go to debtor's prison, kids. No, it's not good. The more you know. Much of these paintings conveyed their moralistic meanings through series. So, for example, there would be, like, a series of paintings, let's say six, depicting uh, a character's life and fall. Sure, sure. So and you need, you need it to be a series because... Otherwise, it just looks like a guy's having a real fun time. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, wrong, yeah, get the wrong I want to partake in this orgy. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, no, 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 see where this is leading. Yeah. Hogarth is kind of also known for what I'll call kind of a comic strip style where, like, you'll have a couple of paintings, not all of them were series, but you would have a couple of paintings that would tell a bit of a story. Like, there's um, this pair of paintings called Before and After, and Before is this guy going after this, like, maiden, and she's like, no, really, just leave me, give me some space. And then After is uh, her being like, why don't you talk to me anymore? And him, like, leaving the house. I see. Before and after marriage. Right, so yeah. this is kind of a example of what Scott McCloud would call sequential art. Exactly. Mm. Um, Hogarth completed several of these types of series, the first being A Harlot's Progress okay. around 1731. Okay. Um, these paintings, like the originals and everything, were destroyed in a fire in 1755. Oh. So they lost. Um, but they were a big success, so he followed them up with A Rake's Progress which he completed between 1733 and 34. It's good to have like a naming convention so that people understand that this is the same, you know, it's the same guy and it's it's the same yeah. franchise. Well, like the ones later on deviate from this okay. uh, a noun's progress. Right. I think he used a Vrig's progress because a harlot's progress was so successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The series uh, depicts eight scenes of the character Tom Rakewell. Okay, yep. The first one is titled The Heir, like heir to uh, Oh, stuff. okay, sure. Um, so it depicts Tom being fitted for new clothes. His miserly father has just recently died, and Tom has come in to wealth through inheritance. Tom is also shown rejecting his pregnant fiancée, Sarah, saying, I have money now. Uh, I don't need you. <laughs> That's not how that works. Listen, Tom is... Thinking outside the box here. 
The second of the series is called the Levee or Reception. Uh, Tom is hosting a reception with fancy people, fancy clothes, fancy food, just everything money can buy. Fancy, fancy everywhere. Exactly. The third in the series is called The Orgy, and Tom is going wild at a brothel. Sure, like you do, I guess. So you can see why. You need the other paintings in the series, otherwise this just looks like a great time. Like, why yeah. wouldn't everyone want to be Tom right now? Well, it's like it's like when you meet people who somehow took, like, the wrong message from, like, the Wolf of Wall Street or, like, Scarface <laughs> or whatever, and it's like, you know that he dies at the end or he goes to jail at the end? Or, like, right? Like Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of going to jail, mm. the fourth in the series is titled The Arrest. Uh, Tom narrowly escapes being arrested to go to debtor's prison, ironically saved by his ex-fiancée, Sarah. And this seems to be a chance to maybe turn his life around? Mm. We see by the fifth of the series, titled The Marriage, uh, Tom is marrying a rich dowager. All right. uh, In order so he can stay in wealth. Um, But in the painting, we see Sarah's kind of like outside a window with, like, puppy dog eyes, like, neglected yet again. And um, Tom is already eyeing one of the housemaidens up and down. Oh, boy, Tom. <laughs> the sixth of the series is titled The Gaming House. Tom is shown uh, having lost all his money to, you know, his weekly poker game, and he's <laughs> on his knees looking up at the sky being like, God, why won't you help me win? Oh boy, Tom, you uh, <laughs> you don't really know how God works, do you? Uh, the seventh is titled The Prison. So Tom is now in the Fleet Debtor's Prison. Um, this is the same prison where Hogarth's father was incarcerated. Okay. And uh, Tom is being shown going mad. Um, and you can tell based on like the symbol symbology of items in the in the scene. Okay. Art historians who know things have told me this. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the final painting in the series is titled The Madhouse. Tom has gone fully insane and is dying in Bethlehem Hospital, uh, which is an infamous mental asylum in London. Now in both 7 and 8, Sarah, his ex-fiancée, is still shown trying to help and being ignored or rebuffed. And yeah, Tom, Tom meets a, a lonely end. So, Sarah, you, you brought up the Bethlehem Mental Asylum. Mm-hmm. Is that... That sounds kind of similar to Bedlam. Yeah. Yeah. So what's up with that? <laughs> Bedlam is kind of a nickname for the Bethlehem Royal Hospital um, and is the uh, setting for the movie, yes. I believe. Correct. This hospital, at the time of Hogarth's paintings in 1735, had recently expanded to the Moorfields in the city of London. Uh, And, yeah, it's kind of infamous because it's been around for a very long, long time. Okay. Um, How long? uh, (laughs) Well, it was founded in 1247. Oh. And it is still operating today. Well, I guess that puts it right up there with, like... Christ. No. No. Like, <laughs> no, more like things like, you know, Oxford University and the British Crown are like the two things that it's about the same age as. Yeah. Yeah. When it was founded, uh, it was kind of designed to be 
a center to collect alms for the poor in the community, but also to support um, people going to Jerusalem. Okay, yep, that tracks. I think you could also kind of describe it as like a church community center. Okay. Not exactly that, but that's like the closest analogous thing I could think of. Right. The priory serving there would take in the sick and poor when needed, and eventually, throughout the years, the connection to the church disappeared because of religious and political changes. Okay. As far as Bethlehem being known as Bedlam, uh, the earliest date of that nickname coming in is around 1377. Oh, so early on. Yeah, um, and that was because Bethlehem began focusing on caring for the mentally ill. Bedlam is uh, a noun, and it means a scene of uproar and confusion. Right. And Bethlehem, Bedlam, it kind of trend, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can see how you get there. Bethlehem is like... Short for Bethlehem. Yes, yes, yes. So that's 1377. Yeah, that's still Uh, 400 years before these paintings. Yeah. um, The medieval treatment of mental health at this time was not great. It involved things like solitary confinement, restraining, beatings, not good things. Exorcisms. Exorcisms, yes. It wasn't until around 1634 that Bethlehem converted from these medieval treatments to... Uh, medical or early modern treatments. Okay. And the reason I can point to 1634 specifically is that was when the introduction of an actual medical structure came into Bethlehem with an on-site physician, surgeon, and apothecary. Gotcha. Um, Now, these treatments were still not the best. They were things like cold baths, bloodletting, scarification, blistering, and... uh, Forcing evacuation of bowels and stomachs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, our treatment of the mentally ill hasn't really gotten, like, close to good until, like, within the last, oh, 40, 40 years. 40 years? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because, like, I mean, we were still doing, like, forced sterilization. True. Like, right up until pretty recently, and, like, electroshock therapy and lobotomies. Like, things have been bad in terms of treatment of the mentally ill until very relatively recently. Yeah. These types of treatments that I just described continue to take place in Bethlehem until the Mm mid-1800s. They started to change in the early 19th century when attitudes and treatment of the mentally ill began to be questioned and kind of considered dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kind of see that with the Lunacy Act of 1845 and kind of onward from there. Um, but changes toward better treatments wouldn't be made at Bethlehem until 1888. Okay. Um, and the last thing that I'll point out, uh, at the time of Hogarth's paintings, kind of actually starting in like the 1600s, uh, it was common practice for the public to just come in and sightsee at asylums. Okay, um, that's, wow, before TV, you know? Yeah, and I mean, obviously you would have relatives coming in and visiting, but um, people who have no connection to the patients uh, could just come in. Apparently it was, like, really popular during, like, holidays, like Easter and Christmas. Going to an asylum to gawk at 
these crazy people. So it's more like going to the zoo. Yes. Um, and you see that depicted in Hogarth's paintings. Fucked up. Sure is. Well, back to you, Ben. Back <laughs> to the studio. <laughs> what What's happening at RKO right now? Sure. With all of that being taken as the inspiration for the screenplay, Luton worked on writing the film with longtime collaborator Mark Robeson, who also directs. The team was given their largest budget ever. Oh. $350,000, which is over double what Luton's typical budget was. I guess it makes sense because it's a period film. Well, he had been given for Mademoiselle Fifi, which was a period film, I think 200000 And I believe that Body Snatcher and Isle of the Dead were both in the two hundred to two fifty range. The films before that were all about a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand, but yeah, so this is three hundred and fifty thousand. Wow. Filming began on July eighteenth, nineteen forty-five, utilizing sets from Arkeo's smash hit film *The Bells of St. Mary's*. Joining Karloff in the cast as the Lutonian heroine is actress Anna Lee, who had also appeared with Karloff as the heroine of 1936's The Man Who Changed His Mind. Born Joan Boniface Winifrith on the 2nd <laughs> of... What? Jan- what is her name? Her name originally was Joan Boniface Winifrith, and she was born on the 2nd of January, 1913, in England. The Winifriths go back all the way to the 10th century. uh, So before Bethlehem. Right. And there has always been a, like, connection between them and the monks of, like, St. Boniface or something like that. And so it's just, like, a common name that has, like, passed down the family for a thousand years. Okay. I just feel really bad if someone was born into that family but had a lisp. Right. Uh, well, I mean, she changed her name to Anna Lee, so. Uh, <laughs> she trained as an actress at the Royal Albert Hall and made her debut on the stage at age 19, with her career picking up due to the quota quickie system designed to stimulate the British film industry. She was signed to Gainsborough in 1934, where she made The Man Who Changed His Mind in 1936, which had been directed by Robert Stevenson. In 1937, she appeared in King Solomon's Mines, also directed by Robert Stevenson, and they were married uh, the following year. Ooh, some behind-the-scenes gossip, I'm sure. (laughs) Sure. The couple came to the United States ahead of the Second World War, where Stevenson would direct Jane Eyre in 1943, while Anna Lee starred in How Green Was My Valley in 1941. Is that the Jane Eyre with Orson Welles? Correct. Cool. The couple divorced in 1944, and their two daughters elected to live with Stevenson, who would later go on to direct Mary Poppins in 1964. Lee married George Stafford, the pilot of her plane during her World War II USO tour, (laughs) and they had three children. She was promoted in Hollywood as... The British Bombshell. Sure. Also featured in the cast is vaudevillian Billy House, who was born William Comstock 
in 1889. Um, also from London? Because that no, sounds Minnesota. like a British name. No, Minnesota. Okay. It's just a 19th century name. <laughs> Originally a trumpet player, he worked in circuses, vaudeville, burlesque, and radio before making his way to Broadway and then Hollywood. He was the live-action model for Doc in Snow White and later Smee in Peter Pan. His vaudeville act and his comedy routines and a lot of his like live-action roles in film all kind of revolve around the idea that like he's fat. Mm. Like that's kind of his a big part of his his gags. Someone in the cast who we are familiar with is Richard Fraser, who played the vengeful James Vane in Picture of Dorian Gray. That's uh That's the guy who comes to him and he gets blackmailed into like disposing of the body? No, that's Angela Lansbury's brother who confronts him at the like brothel. Oh, okay. And is the sailor? Yeah. Yeah, he appears in this film as well as RKO heartthrob Glenn Vernon, who had worked for Luton and Robeson before in Youth Runs Wild. Another familiar face in the cast is perpetual old man Ian Wolfe, who we've seen in The Raven, Mad Love, Return of Dr. X, The Invisible Man's Revenge, and who can also be recognized in the 1935 Mutiny on the Bounty, the 1936 Romeo and Juliet, Blondie, Foreign Correspondent, Saboteur, Mrs. Miniver, Now Voyager, Song of Bernadette, Pearl of Death, Zombies on Broadway, Confidential Agent, They Live by Night, the 1953 Julius Caesar, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Rebel Without a Cause, two episodes of the original Star Trek, THX 1138, and the 1990 version of Dick Tracy, among many, many more. So he's been around. Yeah. I feel like if you're listing a lot of film titles, Mm. um... You should say them like you're saying the side effects to those <laughs> drugs on, on TV. Sure. Someone else we've seen before is Jason Robards, who was best known as playing the Count of Monte Cristo on Broadway and also as the father of award-winning actor Jason Robards Jr., but who had previously appeared in Mademoiselle Fifi and Isle of the Dead for Luton before appearing here. Another very familiar face is Leland Hodgson, a British actor who we've seen in The Invisible Man Returns, The Wolfman, Ghost of Frankenstein, Invisible Man's Revenge, Man in Half Moon Street, and The Uninvited. So a lot of returning faces. Yes. Uh, Finally, we have Luton Stallworth's Elizabeth Russell and Skelton Nags, who we will be seeing for the final time. Additionally, this is the last score from Roy Webb we'll be hearing and the final time we'll enjoy the cinematography of Nicholas Musaraka. I mean, these people will all go on to do more movies, but not movies that we'll be covering on Scream Scene. Filming completed on August 17th, 1945. On February 2nd, 1946, RKO production chief Charles Kerner died from leukemia. He had been Luton's greatest champion at the studio the creator of RKO's showmanship instead of genius policy that had put the studio in the black after the expensive failures of Orson Welles and Walt Disney. He was replaced by Dor Sherry, the producer of The Spiral Staircase and later replacer of Louis B. Mayer at MGM. Bedlam was released on May 10th, 1946. It made $310,000 
on its $350,000 budget. Oh, so it didn't even make up... It didn't even break even. No. Oh, no. $40,000. Oh, no. So, with such a big loss, and the horror genre sort of being on the downswing, and Val Luton having shown that he could not make a hit outside that genre with Youth Runs Wild and Mademoiselle Fifi, RKO made the decision to fire Val Luton. Luton suffered a heart attack afterwards, and after recovering, he sold a script about Lucrezia Borgia to Paramount, which was eventually produced as Bride of Vengeance after heavy rewrites by Michael Hogan and Cyril Hume. While at Paramount, Luton produced the drama My Own True Love, and then later the film Please Believe Me at MGM. He attempted to form his own production company with his protégés Ray Wise and Mark Robeson, but the two younger men wanted to produce their own films instead of Luton's ideas. So they kicked their mentor out of the group in order to continue on on their own, resulting in a further deterioration of Luton's health. He wrote a script about the Battle of Ticonderoga and produced it at Universal as Apache Drums in 1951. Producer Stanley Kramer, who would go on to be famous for films like Judgment at Nuremberg, uh, Inherit the Wind, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, offered Luton a six-picture deal at Columbia as Kramer's assistant producer, but... Another heart attack sent Luton into hospital, and he died in 1951 at age 46. Mm-hmm. His son, painter Val Luton Jr., passed away in 2015. Following the change in management at RKO, Mark Robeson left the studio. He continued his career with many other films, like Champion in 1949 for United Artists, Home of the Brave, that same year for United Artists, Peyton Place in 1957 for 20th Century Fox, and Valley of the Dolls in 1967 for 20th Century Fox. He would die of a heart attack in 1978 at age 64. With horror on its way out again, Boris Karloff had to transition to other genres. Uh, With roles in comedies such as 1947's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Karloff also appeared in the crime thriller Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome in 1947. Uh, Karloff plays Gruesome. And he also appears in the 1949 horror parody film Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer, Boris Karloff, for Universal. So he eventually makes his way back to Universal. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean... I feel like we keep saying the same studios over and over again, so well, it makes were... sense that he has to bounce between like the same four or five people. Yeah, I mean there were like six studios. So. Yeah, yeah. But I, uh, I do imagine someone at Universal being like, "Well, you come crawling back, eh?" Boris Karloff's like, "You try making this movie without Boris Karloff. <laughs> he, I'm in the title. Like, you try making this without <laughs> me. What are you gonna do?" Anna Lee would go on to continued success in films such as 1947's The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, 1948's Fort Apache, as well as The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Mutiny on the Bounty, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, all in 1962. 
The Sound of Music in 1965, In Like Flint in 1967, and finally, the role of Lila Quartermain on General Hospital from 1979 to 2003. Damn. Before passing away at age 91 in 2004. That's like nearly over 20 years. Yeah, that's a that's a soap opera. Yeah, no, it's impressive to be on a soap opera that long. Yeah. Elizabeth Russell would pass away at age 86 in 2002, while Skelton Eggs would pass away from alcoholism in 1955 at age 43. 1946 was the most profitable year for RKO and the film industry as a whole ever. Ever? Ever. Never got better than 1946. It's all downhill from here. Correct. On the scale of profit, not necessarily the scale of like gross dollars because nowadays we live in a world where like Disney makes oil company money um by having multiple billion dollar movies every year but movies cost a lot more now as well yeah and of course this is adjusted for inflation yes yeah yeah like total profit dollars profit like profit like like percentage like profit margin 1946 is as good as it ever got. Yeah. Uh, That year, RKO won Best Picture for the film The Best Years of Our Lives, which was also the most successful film of the decade. But a series of blows would bring the film industry low, repeated antitrust challenges to Hollywood's business model saw the powerful, vertically integrated studios broken up into constituent companies, you could no longer, uh, after a antitrust lawsuit against Paramount, have a studio that owned both production, exhibition, and distribution. So Famous Players becomes a different company from Paramount, for mm-hmm. instance. Meanwhile, foreign markets were imposing heavy tariffs on imported U.S. films in an attempt to encourage recovery of their own film industries post-World War II. Meanwhile... Audiences at home in the United States soon stopped going to the movies in favor of this new medium called television. Profits dropped 27% across the industry in 1947. So that's the real reason why 46 was the Mm -hmm. highest profit margin. Mm -hmm. Nothing Uh, else to do. There's no executions. There's no asylums we can go and, like, stare at people at. Right. Zoos are pretty terrible right now. Guess we'll stay in and watch television. In 1948, eccentric aviation tycoon and film producer Howard Hughes bought out the controlling interest in RKO from the Atlas Corporation beating out the bid of J. Arthur Rank. Hughes dropped production from 30 pictures a year to 9 and canceled message pictures in favor of films that would showcase his favorite actresses. (laughs) RKO's profits dropped a further 90% in 1949. Yeah, well, he cut, like, film production by two-thirds. The studio would continue to make critically acclaimed, successful films in the 1950s, but it would also drop into the red and never come out. So Bedlam is available on DVD (laughs) as part of the Val Luton Horror Collection from Warner Home Video. 
and online through Google Play and YouTube. So, is this the last we're seeing of RKO? That's kind of how it sounds. We will be seeing a few more horror pictures from RKO. Okay. Uh, so their story will continue. Okay. But uh, there's a reason you don't see RKO movies, you know, playing in the theaters today. Yeah. Is this also, like, the last horror movie we're seeing of 1946? Because, again, that's what it kind of sounded like. If there, We will have some more. There will be some more... But they're poverty rows, so it makes sense to talk about the industry at large here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to have a Universal movie, but that movie is going to be the one that is blamed for the utter death of horror as a genre and its profitability. Well, folks, hopefully you can grab a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Bedlam from 1946, directed by Mark Robeson. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone we just finished watching bedlam from 1946 directed by mark robeson ben what did you think of this one i enjoyed this movie but um i i think this movie is not super sure of its genre yes i would agree with that i think luton was like oh shit this is a lot of money they're giving me Well, I've tried a moralistic film in the past, Youth Gone Wild, Mm -hmm. and it didn't do well. I've tried a historical drama in the past. That didn't really go well. Mm -hmm. So maybe I can give it one more shot and say it's a horror film. Yeah. Yeah. But I I did enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's it's good. It's worth seeing um, other than, well, let's just talk about the story and then we can get into it. Sure. The film is set in 1761, uh, and it opens with some text saying, Oh, yes, 1761. They called it the Age of Reason. Yeah. Paraphrased. It's, yeah, it's, it's very, um, the implication is supposed to be like, and of course it wasn't, right? Like, yeah. it's very heavy-handed. That could be used to describe much of this movie. Mm-hmm. In any case, Lord Mortimer and his protege... Nell Bowen, are returning from a night out when they pass a crowd in front of Bethlehem Hospital. Turns out an acquaintance of Mortimer's had fallen from a window while trying to escape Bethlehem and died. Mm -hmm. Mortimer summons the apothecary general, Master George Sims, to his house the following morning. Uh, This is the man who runs the hospital and is played by Karloff. You see, the friend who died was going to put on a show for Mortimer's political friends at a party, and now that's just not going to happen. Sims appeases Mortimer by offering to have his patients perform instead. And what a coincidence that this guy's death happened under Sims' watch, when the man wasn't uh, apparently committed, like wasn't a patient, was just like a visitor 
who somehow, according to Sims, like, the guards mistook him for a patient and locked him up, and he tried to escape and died. And now Sims has this opportunity. Yeah. Funny how life works. Mm -hmm. Mel, who is Anna Lee, is skeptical about the conditions at Bedlam and decides to go and see them for herself. She goes on a tour given by Sims himself, and, uh, yeah, the conditions are bad. Mm-hmm. The conditions are cartoonish, you could say. Yeah, it's about what I described in the context setting in terms of the medieval treatments and things. It's, it's at this point in the story where they restage the um, bedlam painting from A Rake's Progress. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's straw on the ground, uh, there's no beds, people are chained up. Um, there is this one woman that I want to call attention to mm. who is posed and dressed to be looking almost like Mother Mary, and she doesn't make any eye contact. She actually just seems to be staring kind of up at the ceiling. Um, and the way that Sims interacts with this woman implies that he assaults her. Yes, yeah. Yeah, she's she's like catatonic basically and just stands there not doing anything. And yeah, the the implication is that he sexually abuses her. Uh, Sims's tour with Nell, he basically frames his attitudes about the patients in the sense of, well, they're mindless and thus they are not really any better than animals because of course the you know, common understanding of the way the world worked at that time was like there was humanity, and then beneath that there was animals, and they yeah. were two separate things. There wasn't a regard of humans as animals, and so these are humans as animals, and so he sort of uses that as a metaphor to say like, okay, well, some of them are dogs who just like yammer on constantly, and some of them are pigs and sloth. And so I have to let them, like, laze in their own filth. And some of them are tigers and dangerous, so you have to cage them up. And some of them are doves, and that's when he, like, points to this woman. And uh, Nell, Nell slaps him. Yes. She does that a lot. Yeah, it's great. I think some of the best scenes in this movie are between Nell and Sims. Yes, agreed. As Nell is leaving, she meets a Quaker named Hanay. And if listeners don't know what a Quaker is, just think, like, religious pacifist. Yeah. There, there's more to it, but that, that's that, all that you need to That basically sums it up for this movie, yeah. yeah. Um, and he notes her compassion for the patients because she had slapped Sims um, and was storming out of the asylum. And she tries to blow off Hanay and say, no, nah, I'm cynical like the others. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't like Sims. The next scene is um, at the political party that Mortimer is hosting and Sims has his patients performing and he's like prodding them and one man actually dies because he's been painted gold, uh, 007 style. Right. Uh, and she gets incredibly upset about how cruelly the patients are being treated and she's the only one there who is upset. Everyone else is making jokes, not even paying attention, that man has just died. Yeah. There's one person who doesn't find it funny but isn't really getting, like, emotionally upset so much as, like, uh, just sort of, like, morally outraged, and that's a politician named John Wilkes, mm -hmm. uh, who is part of the Whig 
party in Parliament, uh, whereas Lord Mortimer is a Tory. And so the, the deal here is that the Tories don't give a shit about the suffering of others, and the Whigs are, like, reformers who want to, like, change things. And so Wilkes here isn't so much, like, storming off in anguish like Nell is, but he is being like, see, like, this is why the Tories are bad people. Hmm. And this was in the 1700s? Correct. Huh. Some things just never change. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, Nell storms off, all upset, and Hanay, the, the, the Quaker, tells her to do something about it. So she tries to convince Mortimer to fund a new building and reform the care for the patients at Bedlam, but he relents, uh, thanks to Sims, um, because of the cost. Now, Sims, for his part, doesn't want to lose his position of power with the wealthy elite by having someone else take over Bethlehem. So he begins to manipulate Mortimer to basically ruin their relationship. Mm -hmm. It's at this point that, you know, there's some scenes of, you know, Nell getting back at Mortimer using a parrot, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, she goes to the political rival Wilkes uh, for support in changing Bethlehem's conditions. And it's at this point that Sims gets Mortimer to basically sign a complaint of insanity against Nell, so now she has to go up against a committee to prove she is sane. Yeah, and, and Mortimer is really reluctant to do this because he's like, but, but she's clearly sane. Like, you can't just throw people away for no reason. And what's kind of telling is that, like, long before it gets to this point, like, Sims comes to that idea like immediately. immediately, like she's she's slightly an inconvenience. And he's like, well, we could just have her put away. And Mortimer's like, what? And so he has to like work on Mortimer for a while to destroy their relationship to get him at a point here where he'll sign this. And ultimately, the sticking point is Mortimer's like, well, she's not a threat to herself or others. Like it says, she has to be here to be committed. And fucking Sims' point of view is like, well, she's a threat to my position and to your property. Uh, so, therefore, she is a threat to others, and therefore insane. <laughs> um, now, I will acknowledge that the movie has pointed out that women tended to be institutionalized without actually being insane. Yeah. Um, Wilkes makes this point, um, but it's said, and then we move on. Mm -hmm. And, um, the trial does not go well, um, because Nell treats it as a joke, and then when she realizes how serious it is, it's already over. Yeah. And she is committed. They do some classic, like, witch trial style, like, twisting of really harmless shit into, like, proof that she's insane. Like, her, the proof is all of the pranks that she's been doing on, like, Mortimer or Sims to show that she doesn't like them are shown as, like, proof that she must be crazy. Like, Sims tried to buy her off at one point and to show that she didn't give a fuck, she, like, ate the bill. And they're like, anyone who would eat money is clearly crazy. <laughs> yeah. Now in Bedlam, Nell is frightened of her fellow inmates, and I can't really blame her. But Hanay finds her and encourages her to be compassionate and to help others. He does give her a trowel for protection. A trowel being one of those, like, mason things that you put, like, that you use to take the cement and put between bricks. Yeah, it's sharp, and she definitely has to, like, basically twist his arm to give it to her, because, like, she could use it to hurt somebody, and that's completely unacceptable. And she's like, yeah, but if they're coming at me, I need to protect myself. 
she does do it in a way of like, I have to protect my face from scars. Look how look how pretty I am. Look how pretty I am, Hene. You couldn't allow me to not be so pretty. And Hene's like clearly like the the subtext of Hene is that he like wants to get with Nell, but like can't really openly discuss that because he's a Quaker. Yeah. To her credit, Nell does start helping people with bandages, making beds, um, and generally like making it a better place to be in. She does lose the trowel, though. She and Sims face off a few times, um, kind of with this idea of his belief of these people are animals, hold power over them, etc., and her belief of compassion and, you know, this will help them more. Eventually, Nell is going to get a retrial thanks to Wilkes and will possibly be released. So Sims goes to give her his cure, his cure-all, um, which I believe is, like, they don't say it, but I believe it's just supposed to be a torture device. Well, so, yeah, they don't go into what his cure is, but they show all the other patients, like, reacting like, oh, you fucked if he give you that. Yeah. Um, but earlier we do see a man who had just recently been given this cure, and he's held up in, like, this cage torture thing. Like, th- full of chains and stuff. Right. But I think what they're pointing to is, like, that's the aftermath. Mm. Um, I tried to look up what the, like, what the 18th century equivalent of, like, lobotomies or ECT, uh, was, and the answer is trepanation. Uh, so that's where you drill a hole in someone's head, and the idea was that mental disorders were caused by, like, too much pressure in your brain, um, basically, like, pushing on your skull, uh, because you had, like, a buildup of blood, because it's the 18th century and we're still doing the humors system of medicine. So you would drill a hole in someone's head to, like, basically remove pressure from their head by, like, letting all the, the juice leak out. Don't want that. Uh, some juices you need. (laughs) So, the other patients come to her aid. They protect her, and she manages to escape. As she escapes, the patients hold basically a mock trial of what to do with Sims, because there's one, I guess I'll say, like, the spokesperson of the patients who um, has this idea in his head that he used to be a lawyer. Yeah, we actually don't, we never find out if that's true or not, but my favorite thing about it is that every time he tells you he's a lawyer, he starts to go on this rant about how he was the greatest who ever was. And like this mad <laughs> gleam comes in his eye. But like the rest of the time, he's like pretty calm and like legit. Like this is Ian Wolfe and he's just like a nice guy until you start to mention his law career. And then he just like goes off. <laughs> um, and he's acting as the prosecutor, basically, in this trial. They conclude that he's sane and therefore should be let go. Mm-hmm. But the thematic result is they aren't the savage beasts Sims described because they had rational discussions about who this guy is, like what his goals are. Why are you always beating us? Like mm-hmm. all these sorts of things. As Sims is leaving, the woman I mentioned before who looks like Mother Mary stabs him with the trowel. <laughs> yes. Part of the reason why Hene has been hanging around, by the way, is because he's a mason. He builds things with bricks. Yes. And this is important to note because um, they are doing some expansion of the building. They have to hide a body now. So, and they have his keys. So the patients 
carry the body of Sims and put it behind where there's a new wall being built, and they wall him up, Amontillado style. Yeah. And uh, just before the, like, final brick gets put in, Sims wakes up, and it turns out, like, that trial stab was not uh, fatal. So we get just a brief glimpse of his, like, awake face before the brick gets put in. Yeah, the final brick. It's great. When Nell, Hene, Wilkes, and other authority figures make it back to the asylum to basically find and help Sims, the patients say, we let Sims go. He must have just disappeared. <laughs> Went to Mexico. <laughs> Hene does notice the brand new wall um, because it was made hastily, and he's like, this this is fresh. This yeah. is made right like five minutes ago, guys. And I mean, that's, it's also like his job site. So it's like, <laughs> we didn't put up that wall. That wasn't done yesterday. Um, Nell does notice that Hene notices. And she's like, oh, oh, shit. And she's like, Hene, don't, sh- sh- don't say anything. And as they're having this back and forth look, the authority figures are saying, well, if Sims was murdered by these guys, there'll be beatings and chains and dismay and despair all over. Yeah. But if you really just left, you know what? Let's get a new apothecary physician. We'll get a better apothecary physician person, and we'll come in and do reforms and actually run a hospital the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And Hene's like, huh, well, no one's asking me, so I won't say anything about the wall. And they'll... And thanks says, I'll be a Quaker, let's get married. Basically, yeah, in not so many words. Yes, I'm definitely paraphrasing. Um, the ending is better than I am making it sound, but that is the gist of the ending. Mm-hmm. The end. <laughs> so, there's, a, I think, a lot of interesting things to unpack here. What would you like to tackle first? Well, um, I just want to point out that Apparently, George Sims is based on the real-life Bethlehem head physician, John Monroe, hmm. who would have been head physician um, during the time period that the film is set, 1761. Hmm. Um, but there's nothing that I could find that said Monroe thought of the patients as animals or right. anything like that. Um, the only thing I could find is, uh, apparently he wrote an essay in response to someone else talking about how evacuation of the bowels and yes. the stomach, um, was an effective cure for mental illness. Yes, that was which a Which was common... a common belief, as I said in the context setting. So, yes. um, there's nothing particularly unique about John Monroe. Um, I think the idea that George Sims is based on him is just because of the time period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Sims is just a villain for Karloff to play. A lawful evil villain. Yes. Which was very fun because you don't see many of them done well. Karloff is really good here, and you can tell that he's enjoying playing, like, another multi-level character. Um, Sims is really interesting because he is clearly, like, very cruel. And he clearly is someone who delights in getting back at people, for one thing. But he's also, like, a man of letters. He's someone who enjoys writing poetry and, you know, rhymes and plays and things. And is clearly, like, very well educated. And when he is put on trial, ultimately, like, his defense of his actions is that... 
while everyone else is doing it. I have to go along with their perspective of you for your treatment. Well, yeah, I mean, but also the other layer that he brings to that is to say that he is someone who would normally be poor, that like his very modest, because he's not quite upper class. He's like middle class with pretensions of being in the upper class. And, you know, saying that, he has what he has because he has this position so he can't lose this position and the people who like fund the hospital and like regulate it they expect the inmates to be treated in a certain manner under a certain philosophy so that's the philosophy he adopts because he can't lose this job and that if he's cruel it's because because he has those pretensions to join the upper class he finds himself having to like toady to upperclassmen very frequently, and that makes him feel bad about himself, and he takes it out on others. Like, there's there's psychology going on with him that's that's neat. Do you believe him? Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Because, on the one hand, like, he's in a position where he's just going to say whatever he can to get out of there alive, but also, if that's not the case, then the movie does a really poor job of actually exploring Sims as a character... And this gives him more depth. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at as well, because it's definitely confession under duress. Mm-hmm. But I, I also wasn't sure because we do see him being very cruel to people mm-hmm. without cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the psychological basis of like, I feel shitty about myself, ergo, I am cruel to others, is not an unjustified one. Or like a... Um, yeah, it's not a revolutionary idea. It's right. not unheard of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Like I mentioned, uh, there is a mention about, uh, oh, your wife keeps nagging you while well, you can institutionalize her. Um, and of course we have the plot point about institutionalizing women as a way to deal with upstarts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I, I found myself feeling disappointed that the film, I feel like it missed an opportunity with the trial scene. Uh, Nels's trial mm. to really pound it home. So I think this is going to bring us into. I think there's a lot I want to say about this movie, and it sounds like there is a lot of that you want to say about it too. And honestly, like this, even this point you're making right now, really results from what I think is this movie's central problem. Okay. Which is that it is not committed to being a horror movie. Yeah, I would agree. There are scenes in this movie that are horror, like for sure. Um, And there's the usual Luton use of shadow and sound on display Mm -hmm. um, to make things creepy or or heighten tension. There are scenes in this movie that are horror, for sure. But as I have often said, there are scenes in Lord of the Rings that are horror, Mm -hmm. and that's not a horror movie. It also has scenes that are great examples of how Luton himself does horror in the way that... Sims and Nell speak to each other. Yes. And their conversations being more philosophical and the horror about how those ideas are being taken. Yes. Or, like, put into actual practice. So that's that's a very Luton thing here. And, of course, uh, Luton's penchant for in-depth historical research yes, is also here absolutely. as well. absolutely. To the point where Wilkes is a real person. Right, like, exactly. Yeah. But I think, ultimately, despite the horrors that Nell and Sims experience... I never quite got the feeling that the film was out to scare its audience at the end of the day, other than in a few, 
you know, isolated scenes here and there, but it never felt like that was the overall goal of the movie. It feels like, for me, a moralizing historical drama that keeps being pulled into horror when it's convenient. Yeah, exactly. Like, by the end of the movie, it has the same kind of feeling as, like, when, if you've watched, like, a movie about, like, I don't know, uh, the polio vaccine being made or something, <laughs> where, like, the, the movie shows you the trials and tribulations it took to get there, and then the movie ends with, like, the very first patient getting treated, and then a card comes up and it says, like, since 1940, uh, 10,000 people have been helped by the polio vaccine, and today many more are, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, um, I mean, I didn't mention it, but this film does end with a title card. Yes, uh, a title card saying that, like, reforms came to Bethlehem in 1771, and ever since, like, it has gone on to be a hospital that is, like, a beacon for the proper treatment of the mentally ill or whatever. And I'm going to talk about that title card in some detail a bit later. Yeah, because I don't think it's correct. None of that is true. Yeah. Um, so, but this ending where mm-hmm. we are assured that reforms occurred and everything got better as well as the film's, like, frequent emphasis on, like, the worth of morality and the power of nonviolence and kindness, this all feels much more akin to a message picture than a horror picture, despite how the movie was marketed. And to me, it feels like as if the filmmakers realized that their audience was just about done with horror as a genre and wasn't really in the mood for it anymore. And so now was their time to just get, like, a few good scares out of them while the going was still good before moving on. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know, I stand by my feeling of Luton being like, this This is the most money they've given me. Let's try to do what I was trying to do in past films, but really succeed. At yeah, it. I mean, absolutely. Like, despite the way this movie was marketed, despite all of the trappings, despite what the movie would have you believe, this film has much more in common with Youth Runs Wild and Mademoiselle Fifi than it does with Body Snatcher and Isle of the Dead. Yeah. A lot of what makes this not horror is a question of emphasis. Yeah. I I think the Nels' trial scene is a great example of that. Because I knew she was fucked as soon as she walked in. Yeah. But she was joking around. Mm -hmm. Like, the way she's answering questions is kind of in a jovial manner. Yes. And I felt so frustrated because I was like, Nell, you're fucked. Fucking take this seriously. Yeah. And I feel like there should have been something of a more, like, Kafkaesque quality yes. to it. Absolutely. Um, and there, there's even ways to have emphasized the feeling of, like, the witch trial mm-hmm. element or the... Even, like, a, a feeling of bureaucracy or, like, just not being heard because you're a woman and these guys are men. Um, men of power and you, like, literally all of your belongings except for your pet parrot were taken by, like, this rich guy. Like, you could have really emphasized that with the filmmaking as well. And they film it almost proscenium style. Yeah, it's filmed very plainly as just, like, a conversational scene. And nothing is done to highlight any of those elements that it really should have. Like, the thing where she's not taking it seriously is frustrating because, like, I wanted to yell at the screen, like, Nell, you know you're a woman in the 18th century, right? <laughs> like, like in the sense that, like, and I'll have more to say on this later, but Nell feels like a female version of a character that we usually see as male. 
uh, which is to say this person who is like super confident of themselves, doesn't take anything seriously, everything's kind of a joke, and wants to pretend that they don't actually care about other people, but they actually do. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of, like she's a, her character type is Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> right? But she's sure. but she's a woman in the 18th century who's just been, I guess, like sheltered from the realities of her gender by her wealth, basically. But, you know, you talk about the cop guest thing, like this scene should have felt more like, you know, Carl Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc, for one thing. Yeah, that's what I really wanted. Or you could still have the stuff where she doesn't taking it seriously and she's joking and you slowly come to realize like, no, Nell, that's not the right course to be taking because that's what Kay, played by Anthony Perkins, does in Orson Welles' adaptation of Kafka's The Trial. These guys all show up, start asking these absurd bullshit questions as if he's committed a crime, which he knows he is not, and he just gives them a bunch of jokes because he's not taking it seriously and that leads to like, things getting worse for him. Yeah. Right? And the way that scene is directed is, m like, really communicates, like, the absurd horror of it all in a way that this doesn't. And I think a big part of it has to do with how Nell reacts. Yeah. Because ultimately, eventually, she recognizes that she's fucked. But she's kind of, like, you know, yelling out, like, my lords, my lords, like, please, like, listen to me, no, don't send me, no. And it's kind of, she's she's pleading and she's crying a bit, but the horror isn't there. It's yeah. it's more like the feeling of, like, if you went in to an impound lot and you were like, listen, I don't have any money, but I really need my car back because my, my child is dying of... Uh, disease Lupus. and I need to get him to a hospital right away and the impound guy was like sorry lady like you don't have money like nothing I can do and then he walks away and you're like no please please if you'd only listen my son as opposed to hey we're about to lock you in the madhouse yeah you know and I, I wondered if because we know Robeson can direct things in a horror German expressionist type of style yeah and we he, see he, it in this film yeah he does it in other scenes but like, why didn't we get it in the trial scene? And I think part of it is Nell feels like she was picked up in 1946 and mm -hmm. plopped in. Yeah. And when things go poorly in the trial, I think that's supposed to be like a wake-up call to the audience to be like, oh, shit, this was serious. Mm -hmm. But I don't know why... I, that feels like a wrong the wrong way to do this well, scene. Well, it's because it makes sense if the movie isn't horror. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Like, if it was a horror movie, it would be emphasizing these things, but it isn't. The horror in this movie never really registers much above, like, the implicit level. The thing with Nell and the way she reacts to things is that if this movie was a horror movie, she would have been admitted to the hospital much earlier in the story. Yeah. It would have been really horrific. We would have emphasized her experiences in the hospital and shown, like, what was all these bad things happening to her and the horror of it. For, like, the, that would have been the second act. But the second act instead, if that's where you think the second act starts, um, she's never really under threat for very long. At first, she's a little bit scared of her surroundings, but once she gets the trowel, you know, very quickly she doesn't even need it because she makes friends with a bunch of the inmates and like, oh, look, they're just people, even if they are nuts. And like, oh, the really far gone ones you can do well with if you just show them a bit of kindness. And soon as shit, she's Mother Teresa 
and isn't under any threat at all. Yeah. Right? Sims's situation with his mock trial and what happens after is genuinely threatening, uh, even though we have seen all the elements of it before in, like, the 1930s and Heimlich Geschichten or various Poe adaptations that we've seen. Um, but the horror never really registers much because, for example, we are denied his full reaction to being sealed in, right? Like, he wakes up, sees that it's happening, and it's done. Yeah. And we get the story point of, like, ah, he's gotten his just desserts, and what a horrific thing to be done to him. Mm-hmm. But we don't hear him scream, we don't see him struggling behind the wall, right? Like, it cuts away to the next thing very quickly. If you think about his reaction when the brick goes in, mm-hmm. or lack of reaction, mm-hmm. really to the woman's reaction when she wakes up in the coffin in Isle yes, of the Dead. precisely. Yeah. Like, that's not, it's not emphasized enough, right? Nell, her big source of fear in the movie isn't the asylum or the inmates or anything. It's Sims. Mm-hmm. But at the moment he becomes truly threatening, where he's like, I'm going to give you this cure, and the fact that they're going to let you out won't fucking matter because you'll be an invalid, um, her escape... And the turn of the patients against him is so telegraphed that there's hardly any question what will happen. Like, the instant Sims is, like, starting to use a threatening tone with Nell, we start to get it intercut with shots of the, like, asylum inmates, like, moving closer in a threatening crowd. Mm -hmm. And Sims even has a line as he's talking to her where he's like, what do you think's going to happen here, Nell? Like, you think all the inmates are going to rise up against me and overwhelm me so that you can escape? That's stupid. And And then then they do. And then they do. So, like, you know that's going to happen so you don't get to live in that moment of, like, oh, shit, she's fucked for very long before you realize that she's totally fine. You know, she's put in this nightmarish situation that, you know, as you pointed out, has occurred to many women throughout history up until pretty recently. Um, But the film makes Nell such a strong-willed character. Uh, She's so, you know, feisty and capable that she only really briefly feels under threat before returning to having the situation well in hand. Yeah. When she loses the trowel... She's like, oh, uh, okay. And then, like, there's one scene where she's like, hey, has anybody seen a trowel around? And everybody's like, no, not really. But she's already made friends with everyone. And the thing is, is when she insists on having the trowel, it's because she's afraid of the inmates, right? As an audience member, I expected that when she lost it, it was going to be like, okay, well, now someone's going to threaten her with it, right? Like, it's going to come back on her. Some inmate's going to attack her with it. There'll be some drama, some thrills, some tension, some suspense, and then, like, she'll get out of it fine, but that'll happen. And instead, it becomes, no, 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 no. It's part of this, like, ironic O. Henry ending with uh, Sims getting stabbed, right? It doesn't threaten her. It it kills Sims. I do appreciate that it was the Mother Mary... Mm-hmm. woman. Yeah, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world and and totally like ties together everything and feels just in a way that like if it had been the lawyer guy, it wouldn't have felt Yeah, as, yeah, because it, it would have disproven the idea that like these guys are actually harmless and totally fine. Like part of this issue with the threat not feeling emphasized and it not feeling like horror is that the film is so very concerned with treating the mentally ill sympathetically Mm -hmm. that they really can't be portrayed as a threat. They're a little scary when she first comes and there's a little bit of, you know, your typical asylum horror movie stuff of like arms reaching out of bars and people cackling maniacally. But like very quickly it's like, oh no, actually these people are all legit, right? It reminds me of what you 
kind of like about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Because Jack Nicholson's like, oh, these guys are just misunderstood. Let's get into wacky adventures. And that's how a lot of movies that deal with, like, people having to go into mental institutions or mm-hmm. anything like that go. It's like, oh, look, we're all just misunderstood. But with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's like, no, these people do need help. Yeah, they do actually need to be here, and by treating them like, oh, you can go off your meds and let's just have wacky adventures, you're causing them more harm than good. Like, Benny and June has this problem, too, right? Yeah, yeah. If the movie wanted to be horror, but also keep this sympathy for the patients, what it should have been showing us was the injustice at Bedlam. Mm Mm-hmm. But we don't really see that. Like, Sims is cruel, yes. And we hear that he beats people, yes. We never see that. We also never see any mistreatment of Nell. Like, instead, Sims kind of just, like, mocks her verbally a lot. But, like, we never see institutionalized abuse. We don't see the other staff at Bedlam, like, abusing people. They're they're sort of accused of, like negligence where it's like oh yeah if you cry out in the night nobody's gonna come because the staff are so used to it there um in the beginning when the guy first falls Mm -hmm. there is a guard person who like steps on his hands yeah and causes him to fall absolutely but But it is all kind of based around well sims is the bad apple here yes yeah and when it comes time to talk about like what's bad about bedlam it comes down to poor conditions it's like well they don't have beds they don't have food it's dirty Right? Like, if we can get some good beds and some nice food and clean everybody, it would be much better. Mm -hmm. And to be horror, Nell needed to be forcibly admitted in the early part of the movie, and her time at the asylum needed to show, like, the staff abusing her and others, because if we aren't going to make the patients the bad guys, which, like, I don't think that's maybe the right move morally anyways, then we should be shown, like, why is it so horrific to be here? And it would be like the abuse of the staff and how you're treated. Mm -hmm. And we don't, like, we hear, there's dialogue about how, like, oh, our food gets stolen and we're starved and all these things happen. But we never actually see any of these things, right? Um, Yeah, and I feel like there's so much dialogue in this movie Mm. that it is easy to miss some of these things. It feels very dialogue-heavy even before Nell gets admitted. Mm -hmm. Um. Because of, like, the amount of pranks going on. And there's so many characters as and there's well. And there's a big focus in the early part of the movie before she gets admitted. Like, her job with Mortimer is basically she's there to be witty. She's there to amuse him and make him laugh. And, uh, you know, this is what kind of Sims wants is he's this poet and he has this wit. And he wants to get out of this position of running this hospital. So he wants to become, like, admitted to the upper classes for this. And after Nell gets admitted, he gets, like, his niece a job doing what Nell was doing with Mortimer. And so there's this big emphasis on, like, witty jokes and kind of word plays and trying to, like, do some Oscar Wilde-esque, like, you know, back and forths. So, yeah, it makes the movie very dialogue-heavy, for sure. Yeah. Also, that Lord Mortimer's plot never goes anywhere. Like, once Nell is admitted, there's no scene where he gets his comeuppance. No. Uh, Well, because the upper class never do. Right, but, like... This movie isn't depicting a realistic sense of the upper class never do. This movie ends with a title card telling you that everything got better. Like, this is a movie that should end with, like, and then the rich people were punished, right? Like, yeah. It, so it feels more like of, a, of an oversight. Yeah. 
one of the like problems here is that like Nell's a little bit scared and we can see that there's like a negative psychological effect on her of being in there, but it has more to do with like her terror of being there. But she never really reacts to the abuses of Bedlam with horror. She reacts to them with righteous indignation because, yeah. because she's a strong heroine and that's kind of the problem. Like, if we want to compare Nell and um, the main character in The Spiral Staircase. Sure. Who is also, like, very independent, strong-willed, but is threatened. Yes. And is kind of the the final girl. Mm-hmm. Nell never gets put into that. No, because like I said, I got a very, like, female Humphrey Bogart-esque yeah, yeah. vibe from her. She's witty, Right? So it means that even when Sims is verbally abusing her, she always has, like, a, a counter barb, right? Like, yeah. she's never really knocked off her feet that much other than in the trial when she suddenly realizes that they're going to lock her up and there's nothing she can do. Like, that's kind of the one part of the movie where she's knocked off her feet a bit. But then once uh, Henne comes with the trowel and is like, you should win everybody over with kindness, like, she's right back to being very much in control of the situation and she stays in control of the situation for the rest of the movie. I will say that, like, that doesn't make her a bad character. Mm-hmm. Nell is a really good character. Annalie imbues her with a lot of um, charm and likability. I really like Nell. It just means that it's another point to this movie not being horror. Right. Um, she is a very interesting character because she's a character who insists that she lacks morality, despite obviously having it. She can't avoid helping others, though she tries to make excuses as to why she's doing so. Uh, And she has very human, spiteful emotions, uh, even as the story moves her more and more towards, like, sainthood. And then finally, at the end of the movie, like, her conversion is fully achieved to being, like, just a straight-up good person. And we've seen that arc over and over with a Humphrey Bogart here. Like, that's Humphrey Bogart's arc in Casablanca and in um, To Have and Have Not. Um, it was just very interesting to see this kind of arc given to a woman. Because yeah. we never see it given to a woman. Women in movies, especially in this time period, are either uh, already angelic, like they're the good guys, or they are femme fatales. Yeah. Right? We don't get this kind of, like, cynic to true believer kind of character arc with women. And I think um, her arc is also why I'm not sure if I 100% trust what Sims tells the people at the trial, Mm. like at his trial, because he's basically describing how Nell survives society. Right. And I don't ever see him as doing that same song and dance. Yeah, and I think that, unfortunately, like... Sims is an interesting character, and Boris Karloff plays him very well, but he doesn't get the depth that he should for being the villain of the piece. He never achieves the height of malice that, say, his character in Body Snatcher did. Yeah, I think we see depth thanks to Karloff's performance. Yeah, not not what's on the page, yeah. And I think that's a shame, because I think if he was allowed to go as far into the malice as he was in Body Snatcher, the film would have been much improved. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, he's cruel, but he doesn't feel altogether threatening. He just feels like, yeah, this guy's 
like a shitty person, and what makes him threatening is that he's a shitty dude who's been granted some small measure of authority, and he therefore abuses it. But we never quite get the same feeling as we do with his character from Body Snatcher, where it's like, no, it's dangerous to be alone in a room with this guy. Yeah. The horror in this movie is a masquerade, right? Like, it's it's been spread on top like peanut butter, but it's not the substance, right? Like, it's like the <laughs> toast is something else. Sure, sure. Um, I, I will say, like... Like, you, you've pointed out how Nell is, like, a very interesting character and is, like, well-suited to be next to Luton's other, like, really awesome female leads. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting to think about how Nell in Bedlam and... I really wish I could remember her name, but the lead woman in Isle of the Dead, mm. um, who is accused of being the vampire, um, how both of them because they're playing against Karloff. These young women are playing against Karloff. It's kind of young women against the old man establishment. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, I mean, Mademoiselle Fifi has a, a, a lot of that as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is why this movie feels more like that than <laughs> Body Snatcher. <laughs> Ultimately, this is a movie that's trying to kind of be an educational, historical, feel-good message movie about morality with some like horror spice added Mm -hmm. and here's the thing i don't think it really even succeeds at that like it definitely doesn't succeed at being a horror movie because that's ultimately not what it's trying to be it's trying to fool you into thinking it's horror so that you'll come watch it but i don't think it's actually successful as at being the the historical feel-good drama it wants to be either and it's mostly because even though Luton does so much research into his historical period, his need to give this movie a happy ending renders all of the themes and everything we've seen up to this point overly simplistic, kind of pat, kind of trite, and the end title card that tells you everything gets better is a lie. Yeah. Um, so Like, things get better, but not within the time frame that it lists. Like, it takes at least, like, <laughs> 150 years before things get better. Yeah, so in the title card, they talk about, like, oh, reforms came in the 1770s and things started to get better. Reforms did come in the 1770s, as the title card mentions, but what the reforms specifically were had nothing to do with the treatment of the patients. What happened in the 1770s is they ended the policy of public tours, Mm. where you could pay money and just tour the place. Yeah. Um, And the thing is, that might seem like a good thing. Because, you know, as we said at the start of the show, like, that's very degrading, and it turns the asylum into a zoo or a freak show, and that's not really the way it should be thought of. But it did end public scrutiny of the institution's practices, yeah, which meant that actually the worst abuses of patients at Bedlam happened after those reforms in 1770. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I read when I was doing research noted that when public tours started in 1600 uh that was when a lot of literature and plays started happening talking about hey mental asylums they're they're not good right am i am i wrong here like they're not good and to your point the reforms that happened in the mid-1800s, a lot of these reforms were spurred by Nellie Bly's nonfiction novel, Ten Days in a Madhouse, where she went into a madhouse, like, 
I, I guess, like, undercover. Yeah, like, as an embedded journalist. <laughs> Basically, yeah. And then she wrote about it. Um, it was published in 1887. And that that's the thing. Like, think about the stereotypical Victorian madhouse. Like, the Victorian era is the late 1800s, over a hundred years after this movie is set, and things are still very bad. Yeah. Um, the thing about, like, the tours is... Bedlam used the tours as a way to elicit sympathy from the public because it was a hospital that relied on donations primarily for funding. Mm -hmm. So the idea was less of, like, go in and laugh at these, like, poor wretches. The idea was to go in, see how terrible conditions were, and be like, oh, man, these guys need more funding. Yeah. Um, Especially because around the um, mid-1700s, a lot of private hospitals were coming out mm -hmm. and they tended to have more money, and a publicly funded hospital like Bedlam, mm -hmm. um, especially when, like, the church is pulled out, it, they need the money. Yeah, and so the thing is, the first real reform attempts by, like, parliament, by, like, politicians with Bethlehem didn't come until 1815, and even then, like, conditions, yes, conditions got better over time. The conditions are not what we would consider good by modern standards at all uh, until much, much later. About the 1930s. Yeah, and even then, the movie ends, like, the title card ends with, like, you know, and today it is a shining example of how well we treat the mentally ill today or whatever. And while I'm sure there were some institutions doing good work in 1946, women were still being institutionalized for being difficult uh, at that time. Yeah. Uh, lobotomies, which don't work and are total bullshit were being performed en masse on mentally ill people everywhere. We still sterilized the mentally ill in Alberta until 1972. Yeah. Uh, lobotomies were finally, like, outlawed in the United States around, like, 1977, um, which is all to say that, like, not only did things not get better in 1771, they didn't get better until 30 years after this movie was made. Yeah. Um, and even then, even then, in 2010... An inmate at Bedlam died due to being fatally restrained. Like, put in a restraint that could cause death, that people knew could cause death, and then did. Yeah. The police were there, and they allowed it to happen. Yeah. They ended up, like, charging six police officers with manslaughter. And that's 2010. So the, the rosy ending that this movie has, where it's like, and then things got better, is an extreme extremely oversimplified view of things to the point of almost being completely false. We've talked about how Luton views death as not inherently evil, right. like not inherently bad, it can be good, and I feel like he continues a similar theme here where people have actually like committed themselves to Bethlehem. Right. Um, like there's an alcoholic there, he's like, no, I committed myself here so I can actually write these stories and make a living and support my family. Like, that's why I'm here. There's people who um, clearly would not be able to function in society. Mm -hmm. um, so, unfortunately, this is, like, the only avenue for them. Yeah, he doesn't portray institutionalization itself as an evil. Yeah. The, the evil is just, like, how the institution is run and, and how the patients are treated. Yeah, and I... I do appreciate that, and I I know for him, 
we've watched like documentaries on Val Luton and I know that he struggled with some mental health things. So I think this was something that was near and dear to his heart about the injustices that he would have read about um, when doing research about these time periods and things. And I think that's why he wanted to tell this story. And I think yeah. that's why he wanted it to have a happy ending. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is, you know, I, I say this stuff about the happy ending being kind of overly simplistic. And I think the same is true of the ending of like youth runs wild where like building a playground solves juvenile delinquency. But the thing about Luton that's interesting is until you get to the ending of those movies, he is very good at portraying a lot of levels and a lot of nuance and a lot of subtlety in what's going on. Maybe Sims isn't altogether a bad guy. Nell, even when she's learning about kindness and being good to other people, like is still like, you know, she goes to Henny and she's like, well, I escaped and the prisoners are going to kill Sims. And Henny's like, oh, that's terrible. We have to go save him. And she's like, what? Yeah. Like, why do we... No, he should get brutally murdered. It'd be rad. Like, <laughs> people have a lot of layers and subtlety and different colors to them. And, like, yeah, the guy who says, like, hey, I'm not actually crazy. I'm just, a, like, I'm an alcoholic, so I'm in here to stop myself from drinking. Like, that was a really nice show of not all the people in this place are, like, ludicrous caricatures of the mentally unwell, you know? Yeah. Um. So there's a lot of shades of gray until he needs to wrap it up and give it an ending. And then because in both Youth Runs Wild, where the problem is like juvenile delinquency, and in Mademoiselle Fifi, where the problem is fascism, and in uh, here, where the problem is like treatment of the mentally ill, like there aren't really actually easy, simple answers, but you want to end on a hopeful, happy note because, you know, he's a guy who clearly cares about these social problems and wants to see them solved. And solving them in a movie is like his way of kind of like vicariously solving them. And so they have to have these overly simplistic solutions because you can't spend another hour at the end of this movie with like, here's the complex legislation, you know? Yeah, I think Luton, like we've talked about his life. Um, if you want like more detail about it, probably listen to our Cat People episode where we yeah. kind of give him like, like his history before RKO. Yeah. Biographical, like growing up details. But he strikes me as someone who feels like Nell, in that he has to be cynical, especially in the 40s with film noir, like, <laughs> where cynicism is, like, the hip new, well, like, the cool thing to be. Right. But he, I don't know, I feel like he's an optimist at heart, and maybe that's why he felt trapped in the horror genre, because horror isn't necessarily anti-optimism, like, against optimism, but I think he needed to be telling different stories for himself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the ending of this movie is one of the things that makes it not horror. Like, the ending, if it was horror, would have, you know, emphasized Sims's fate, for one thing, to yeah. a much greater degree. But also, the movie ends with, like, oh, and then everything was fixed. And yeah, like I said, uh, Sims was just a bad apple. Once we get a good apple in here, everything will be fine. Exactly. And I think you could do a horror movie about the mistreatment of the mentally ill that still is about communicating to people like, hey, this is bad. Yeah. But the way you would have to do it is show all of these injustices and horrors being perpetrated to Nell and, like, show how bad things get and show by the end of the movie that she's, like, a shell of a person because of what's been done to her. And then the movie shouldn't end with a title card saying, and then everything got better 
the movie should end with a title card saying, like, injustices like this are still perpetrated to this day, and the only way it's ever going to be fixed is if we reform and regulate these institutions, talk to your congressman or whatever. Yeah. Right? Like, the way that um, Hexen ends, where it's like... Yeah, I was thinking about that, too. Where it's like, oh, yeah, you think that because we don't put women on trial for being witches anymore that we don't mistreat them. But actually, we take them and say that they're mentally ill and throw them in asylums, and how is that any different, really, than the witch trial stuff? Like, Hexen ends by saying, like, yeah, this stuff is still happening, and it's a problem. Whereas this movie gives an ending that basically tells its audience, you can walk out of this theater and not worry about mental institutions and what's going on in there, because it's all been fixed. Right? So I, I, I love Val Luton. I love his movies. He's a good guy. But just because of who I am and, like, my own history and, like, where I've worked and stuff, I found that the ending of this movie personally insulted me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, it just was very insulting to my intelligence to tell me that, like, oh, yeah, we've everything's fine now. I, I don't think his intent was to be overly simplistic. I think his intent was to offer some hope. Mm-hmm. No, I th- I think so, yeah. Yeah, I like not to say well, it's it's like what you said. He wants to have an optimistic ending where things will get better. Yeah. And I I think like mental health is something that is very important to him as I've said, and I think sometimes there are lies we tell ourselves. Sure. To get through things. Well, and also like to be fair, like people a lot of times in societies are kind of blind to the injustice that their own society perpetrates. Yeah. Sometimes willfully so, right? Like, not wanting to acknowledge how bad things actually are, not wanting to acknowledge injustice, wanting to see injustice as a problem that has been solved. And so I'm I'm perfectly convinced that, like, in the 40s there were probably enough institutions with an appearance of being good and healthy and wholesome that people could fool themselves into thinking, like, oh, injustices don't occur. But the fact of the matter is, like... It took years after this movie came out for the mentally ill as patients to be treated, like, as people with agency. Like, the way that you would treat a patient in a hospital, like, where they've come to you for treatment and they want you, and you're working for them, you know, to help them. For a long time, it was just, oh, yeah, these people are invalids, so we know what's best of them. A very, like, patronizing, a very parental view of things of, like you come in and we're going to take care of you, but, like, you're going to be here forever and we're going to dictate your life to you because we know what's best, right? Yeah. The thing that makes me angry about this movie isn't so much that, like, the ending's overly simplified, I guess. It's the effect of that on the audience. It's the it, fact... It'll make them more placid. It, it lets you off the hook. Yeah. It lets yeah. the audience off the hook. You, like, oh, we don't need to look at our current institutions. They're much better than they were back then. See, we're fine. Yeah, it doesn't give you a situation where you walk out of the theater thinking like, damn, things need to change. You walk out of the theater instead going like, man, the Middle Ages, sure we're bad. Like, it's very reassuring about the state of your own society, which is not something horror movies do. Yeah, and that's not really what a message movie should be either. Right. right. Like, as youth runs wild... The message was, build more playgrounds, guys. Yeah, there was a call to action. There's yeah. no call to action here, because there's nothing actually to fix, because yeah. everything has been fixed. Yeah. I like this movie much more than my righteous anger at the end of this 
program seems to be indicating. It's very well made. It's a good story. The characters are enjoyable. The performances are enjoyable. You should go out and see it. It's a good movie. Yeah. Um, but it is not a horror movie. No. So it will be added to our not applicable part of the list, mm -hmm. along with Ghost Ship, our other non-horror Luton movie we've watched for the show. If you would like to see this list, see what's ranked, see what else is on the not applicable list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to other episodes, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest our consideration of Bedlam as not horror, drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, or email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can get the show through whichever podcasting app you use by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can also help the show out by leaving a rating or a review on the service that you listen to it on. Five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, good reviews. All of these things help shows get seen by new audience members uh, due to the way that algorithms work. Your review doesn't have to be, you know, on the level of criticism. <laughs> no, I want the next Roger Ebert. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that. <laughs> like, you know, a simple like, hey, I really enjoy this show. It's good is totally sufficient. Another way that you can help the show is just by telling a friend about us. Uh, word of mouth is really the only way for podcasts to uh, grow their audience. However, if you find yourself with the means... Uh, head on over to our Patreon, where you can support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, and we will thank you on the show. Or at $5 a month, you get access to our weekly uploads of deleted scenes from previous episodes. And at $10 a month, you get access to the short stories and essays I've written for our Patreon. Um, patron members at any level get access to our yearly special Halloween content, and we would just really appreciate uh, your support. Uh, we recognize that times are tough for everybody, and, you know, so if you can afford to pitch into us, we really, really appreciate it, because times are tough for us as well. Uh, <laughs> we're currently a no-income household, so um, yeah. all of your support is very appreciated. The lights, the lights just keep running thanks to the government of Canada and unemployment insurance. That's right, yeah. And viewers like you. And viewers like you. That's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are watching the film that was blamed for the death of the horror genre. It's She-Wolf of London from Universal, directed by Gene Yarbrough. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.